You may be wondering why I'm teaching and not Landon. He's clearly here. And I'll tell you, it's because he needed me to show him how it's done. (laughs) And now he's never going to let me do it again. (laughs) You get what you pay for with the youth pastor, right? Um, Glad you're here. We're going to close out the sixth chapter of John this morning with our Believe series. And I actually want to start by doing a brief bit of recap from the last couple weeks of this series. Because today's text is really a culmination of the last couple lessons. The bread of life discourse that we've talked about over the last couple weeks has been leading to this text. This is the crux of the entire discourse. So before we get into today's lesson, I want to refresh our minds a little bit with a few things that we've talked about. The first thing that we need to remember is that the bread of life discourse takes place during the time of the Passover. So the Exodus is already on the minds of Jesus' audience. And Jesus uses this natural element to draw the audience's mind, to make connections between himself and God by drawing similarities between the Exodus story. On top of some things that he's, he's just done before this discourse to demonstrate his connection. Over the past couple weeks, Landon's talked about how the discourse takes place just on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000, where he miraculously feeds 5,000 men, plus all the women and all the children, in the wilderness. And it should have drawn the people's minds towards the Exodus, where God miraculously feeds his people in the wilderness. Then John moves on to a story of Jesus leading his people safely through a watery trial. Which again should have drawn their minds back to the Exodus, where God leads his people safely through the Red Sea. And both of these events are occurring right before the Bread of Life discourse and right during the time of the Passover. These events aren't just lucky coincidence, they're created, they're orchestrated by God for Jesus to draw the minds of his audience. Towards the Exodus. And ultimately, to set up what Jesus would say right here at the end of John chapter 6. Then, as John moves into the bread of life discourse, we see the first of seven I am statements found in John. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And now, what's not obvious to us would have been very obvious to his, his audience that day. That when he says, I am, He's claiming to be one with the Father. His I am statement is purposefully meant to draw their minds to the name that God gave himself right before the Exodus, I am. Jesus knew what he was saying and he chose his words carefully. He purposely chose to say, I am. He's trying to draw their minds to the great I am, the I am of the Exodus. And just a side note, I think it's frustrating when people say, I wish Jesus would have just said in the New Testament, I'm God. He did in different ways, in ways that we're not used to seeing. He claims, I am, seven times in John. And there's times where he says, his, his most used phrase, which we'll see here in a minute, is to call himself the Son of Man, which is the reference to Daniel 7. He's claiming to be one with God, if we know what we're reading. 
Everything we've been talking about the last several weeks, all of it leads to this moment. Because what Jesus says right here, after the bread of life discourse, is the most important thing that he says in his ministry. Because what he says is he's keying us into why he came. He's telling us his mission. And that leads me to the big idea for this morning. What Jesus says here is that he has the words of eternal life. He has the words of eternal life. He alone holds the truth to eternal salvation. There is no one else. Last week, Landon talked about how many people get offended that Christians are so exclusive in our understanding and our view of salvation. And they say, why can't, why can't there be more than one way? Why can't you just let all roads lead to heaven? But if we truly understand the result of our sin, we should be eternally grateful that there's even one way. And there is one way. One way. And Jesus is telling us that he's the only one who can tell us about that one way because he is that one way. There's no other way except through him. Let's read our passage together, and then we'll jump into the lesson for this morning. We're in John chapter 6, starting in verse 60 through the end of the chapter. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. Uh, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. And this may, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was, the, was one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Let's pray. God, you are good. We come together as your church this morning to proclaim that you are good, that we believe you are holy and righteous. God, I pray that as we study your word, that you reveal truth to us. Help us to see and understand your words of life. Help us to have faith. Lead us to be true disciples. And may we leave here looking more like you than when we got here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start by telling you a story uh, of a man named Jonathan Sear. I think that's how you pronounce it. That's how Google told me to pronounce it. We'll trust Google. Um, <laughs> in 1951, Canada was engaged in the Korean War, and they were in desperate need of some medical personnel. So Dr. Jonathan Sear enlisted with the Royal Canadian Navy, and he went through an enlistment process that should have taken several months in just a matter of a couple days. 
And so the newly enlisted surgeon lieutenant was shipped off to save his fellow countrymen. And he's the only surgeon aboard his particular naval destroyer. One day, after a raid off the coast of Korea, several soldiers were injured and brought to Dr. Sear for immediate surgery, where he proceeded to amputate one man's foot and even retrieved a bullet from one man's chest that was dangerously close to his heart. And all of his patients that day survived because of his skill. But here's the really interesting thing about Dr. Jonathan Sear. His real name was Ferdinand Waldo Damara. He wasn't a Canadian citizen. He wasn't even a doctor. He was a serial impersonator from America. He was a high school dropout with an astounding IQ and a great memory. The only way he was able to perform the surgeries that he did was simply because he studied some textbooks beforehand in his bunk. But he did so well that his shipmates recommended him for an award. And as he began to get notoriety in the media for what he'd done, he was found out by the real Dr. Jonathan Sear. The point that I'm trying to make in telling this story is that sometimes the difference between what's true and what's false is almost so small that we can't hardly tell the difference. As sinful human beings, We're very good at taking something that's false and making it appear to be good, to be true. And sometimes, sometimes it doesn't really matter if you can tell the difference between what's true and what's false. For instance, I bought Cricket a really nice coach purse several years ago, and it has never mattered to her that she can't tell that it's actually a fake. (laughs) She's gotten a ton of use out of it and never knew the difference. I'm... (laughs) Totally kidding, by the way. (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't matter if you can tell the difference between what's true and what's false. But sometimes it does matter. Sometimes we need to be able to discern the difference. And in John chapter 6, we discover the difference between real disciples of Christ and fake disciples of Christ. What we see in this passage is that a real disciple of Christ is someone who believes someone who believes in Jesus and continues to follow him. But in this passage, we also find some who are called disciples for a time, but they eventually quit believing him. They quit following him. And what we need to see is that some who call themselves Christians may not necessarily be true disciples. Some people who appear to follow Jesus eventually reveal themselves. They reveal themselves as false disciples when they stop following him, when they turn away. And none of that is a surprise to Jesus. As we start looking at what this passage teaches us about being a true disciple versus being a false disciple, I think it's important to look at what this passage also teaches us about Jesus' perspective, his view of the bread of life discourse and, and what he's expecting from us as true disciples. So let's look back at verses 60 to 62. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The reason that so many disciples 
or walking away is because they've been faced with a hard saying. But it's important to note that this is not a, it's not a hard saying because it was hard to understand. It's a hard saying because Jesus' point that he was trying to make was offensive. I read several commentaries this week preparing for this sermon. I promise, I read them. But <laughs> they all agreed that the disciples were not confused. They, they took offense at what Jesus was saying. They found themselves questioning the claims that Jesus was making. I said earlier that Jesus chose his words very carefully when he was preaching the bread of life discourse. And his intentional meaning, it landed with these disciples. They understood what he was saying. They understood that he was saying that he was one with God and that salvation came through him alone. And it made them question their devotion to him. But we have to remember that the Jews in that day were not looking for God himself to show up on the scene. They, they bought in the idea that Jesus was sent from God like the, the prophets had been. So when Jesus starts claiming to be one with God, they begin to question. And it makes them tuck tail and run. But what's really interesting about this encounter is that the disciples grumbling, it didn't surprise Jesus. If you look at how he addresses them, it's clear that he's not, he's not shocked, he's not surprised. He's not surprised that they're struggling to believe. He's not surprised that they're about to walk away. His question to them of whether or not they've taken offense, is, it's not a, a question of genuine interest, that, like he doesn't know the answer. He's not looking to them and saying, oh no, have I, have I offended you? I really didn't mean to offend you. No, his question isn't really a question at all. It's a test. He's giving them an opportunity. The same opportunity that he's about to give the 12 here in, here in a couple verses. He's giving them the opportunity to either believe in what he said and continue to follow him or to reject it and turn away. He's not looking to smooth over any offense that he might have created. He knew that his message was going to be offensive. But he also knew that he's the one that had the words of eternal life. He gave them a test, and they failed because they walked away. But the best part of this section is that he's, he's giving them this opportunity, and he restates his position in another way so that there's, there's no question what he's asking them to believe. If you look again at verse 62, he references being the son of man. As I said earlier, that's a, that's a quote from Daniel 7 where the son of man, who is a human, goes up to sit next to the ancient of days on the throne and is seen as one with God. Jesus is claiming to be that person. There's no question here that Jesus is claiming to be one with God. He's making sure that these disciples who are deciding where they stand, he wants them to know his position is not going to change. But even in the midst of these disciples turning away from him, he takes the time to further clarify his point. He wants his disciples to know without a doubt where his authority to speak this way comes from. Look again at verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. 
The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus is telling the disciples that in order for them to be true disciples, the spirit has to be involved. And this can almost seem contradictory on a, on a surface level reading um, because he's just spent the whole bread of life discourse talking about how eating his body and drinking his blood is what gives us true life. And now he's saying that the spirit is the one who gives life and the flesh is no help at all. And if it, just on a surface reading, you can look at that and think that Jesus might be confused, but he's not. He's not contradicting himself. He's not confused. What's happened is he shifted from talking about what gives life from talking about what he would be doing on the cross and the work he would do on the cross to now he's talking about believing in what he has said. And he's telling the disciples, as they're struggling to believe what he said, that the only way that they can even believe is if the Spirit helps them to. When he says that the flesh is no help at all, he's saying it's not in them to believe. The Spirit has to help them. They must receive help from the Spirit, from outside of themselves. He's telling them, disciples, that you're called to believe in faith, but that faith doesn't originate with you. Which leads me to the last point in this section. Jesus knew before he gave this sermon who would believe and who would walk away. Last week when we looked at verse 44, Landon talked to us about how sometimes we don't like talking about election because it can make us uncomfortable. And maybe sometimes we try to make the text say things that it isn't really saying. And maybe we try to, to just make it make sense to us. But there's no denying what Jesus said in verse 44. You can't get around it. And there's no denying that he's repeating that right here in verse 65 for emphasis. No one comes to Jesus unless it's granted to them by the Father. And they're drawn to Christ by the Spirit. We can't get around that. Jesus knows who his disciples are. Which means he also knows those that have not been given to him. And so before he ever taught this lesson, he knew that what he was about to say would be offensive to some. He also knew that it would be solidifying for others. That for the few that were given to him, that God would use that lesson to draw them closer to Christ. And that God would strengthen their belief. He would strengthen their faith. He knew who belonged to him and who didn't, which is also why he calls out Judas in verse 70. So as we look at this passage and we try to figure out what the difference is between a true disciple and a false disciple, there's a couple things that we need to see. The first thing is that a true disciple is not swayed by the actions of the majority. When many of Jesus' disciples turn and walk away, he turns to the 12 
And he gives them the same test that he gave to the others. The same opportunity to show faith or to turn and walk away. And that's when Peter, speaking up for the rest of the group, as Peter was prone to do, he says, who else are we going to go to? Where else are we going to go? You are the Holy One of God. The twelve passed the test because they stayed when others walked away. They continue in faith when many do not. Now this point has the possibility to be misleading because you might be asking yourself, what about Judas? Because we know that Judas is not a true disciple. But he stays when so many of the other false disciples leave. And you're right. But he did end up walking away. And this point is more aimed at the the 11 true disciples that were not swayed in their belief when so many people around them walk away in unbelief. But that's also because of the source of their faith. Their faith did not originate within them. And true faith from God will lead us closer to Christ, never further away. Second thing we need to see is that being a true disciple means you have no backup plan. Peter's response of of where else would we go, it's a clear sign of their unmatched devotion to Christ. He's saying, we've given everything. Everything that we know, everything that we love, we've left it behind to follow you because we believe in you. We have faith in you, that you are the Holy One of God. We're with you no matter what. There's many times when famous people or rich people go to get married, and before the marriage they make, their future spouse sign something called a prenuptial agreement, which is basically saying, if this happens to end, I still get what's mine, and I don't have to share it with you. It's the ultimate example of just in case. Just in case. Never mind the fact that they're about to stand in front of that person and say things like, till death do us part, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. What they're actually saying with a prenup is that they're partially committed. They want a backup plan, just in case. And Peter's looking at Jesus and he's saying, we have no backup plan. We have no just in case. We're here. We're committed. We believe no matter what. And it's that level of commitment that's the mark of a true disciple. No backup plan. Last thing we need to see in this section is that being a true disciple means following Jesus on a heart level. I mentioned earlier that Judas passed the test, and in a way he did, because he stayed when the other false disciples left. But he doesn't actually pass the test, because he does end up walking away in the end. Judas was doing all the right things on the outside, and it looked like he was a true disciple of Christ. But Judas didn't follow Jesus on a heart level. And we know that to be true for several different reasons. One blatant reason right here in this passage is that Jesus calls him out. 
right in front of everyone else. Of course, it's John who names Judas. It's not Jesus. This isn't when Jesus actually outs Judas. But when Jesus is looking at the 12 and he says, one of you is a devil, he knows exactly who he's talking to. He knows who belongs to him. And so his warning here to the 12 disciples is him looking at them and saying, I know who belongs to me. And even though many have just walked away, I know that there's still one who remains. And I know exactly who it is because I know who belongs to me. And as we think about what it means that Jesus is the one who has the words of eternal life. He's the only one who has the words of eternal life. We have to ask ourselves how we're going to respond. Because now that we know what Jesus was claiming through the bread of life discourse, we're now faced with the same opportunity that all the other disciples were faced with. Which means that we have a choice to make. And as I see it, there's three ways that we can respond to this. The first is either that we can, we can grumble and we can walk away like many of the disciples did that day. We can turn, we can walk away, we can cash in our backup plan and we can move on with our lives. Or we can be like Judas. We can do all the right things We can make it look like everything is good until it's not. We can come to church every week. We can play the game until we just can't do it anymore. Or we can be like Peter and the other 12 disciples. And we can accept the truth that Jesus has put before us by following the leading of the Spirit. And embrace the truth with our whole hearts in a way that we're, we're willing to follow him continually with no backup plan, no matter what. Here in just a minute, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And I hope that our lessons over the past couple weeks have rejuvenated your understanding of the Lord's Supper. Because while Jesus wasn't necessarily teaching on the Lord's Supper at the Bread of Life discourse, he was teaching on what he would be doing at the cross. The Lord's Supper exists to point us back to the cross. So my prayer is that you find hope in Jesus' words of eternal life. That you've been drawn by the Spirit of God to the Son and that you believe in his work on the cross with a faith that's genuine and continuous. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, I encourage you to take the elements as they come by so that you can celebrate your faith in Christ with all of us as a church. But if that's not something that you've done yet, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, we ask that you let the elements just pass by. And if that is you, I would encourage you to spend this time in prayer to ask yourself where you stand, what you believe, if you will follow Christ as the 11 did or if you'll turn and walk away like so many did. Let's pray.